Go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18. I don't have the bulletin with me. Can somebody say the page number in the Pew Bible? It should be on the bulletin there. Ten sixty six. So if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and open the Pew Bible in front of you, the little black hardcover book, and it's going to be on page ten sixty six. If this is the first time that you've used a Bible, the big numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are going to be the verse numbers. So again, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter ten, big number, verses one to eighteen, the little numbers. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. It says this, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire a sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a place for me. You do not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, You did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, See, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being who, those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, "This is the covenant I will make with them after those days," the Lord says, "I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds." And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. God, we come before you this morning, acutely aware, as we've prayed earlier, we are utterly sinful. So we know that we can't come to you without the power of your Holy Spirit, These words would fall upon deaf ears if you do not empower us. So we admit, Lord, that we can't do it, and we pray humbly that your word would speak, 
that light would pierce through darkness. And we trust that your word would breathe life into us this morning. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. How does one stand right before God? This morning is Palm Sunday, which means that we're a week away from Easter. So we're celebrating the day when Jesus uh, proceeds into Jerusalem riding on a donkey as uh, people are waving palm branches and, and laying them down and shouting, Hosanna, God, save us. And we ought to wonder, as we think about Christ's life, his, his death and resurrection comes up this Sunday, what did Christ actually accomplish? Um, two nights ago, I was hanging out with my friend, who I'm going to leave nameless because you're about to find out, and he was describing a rager that he went to. Okay, now, if you know what a rager is, it's a concert, strobe lights, copious amounts of drug use and drinking, and he's describing what a grand old time that we had, and uh, not we, I was not there, to be clear, right? but uh, that he had. Um, I'm listening to him, and uh, my friends and I decide that we should go out to eat. And we're, we're thinking of different places to go, and we think about going out and grabbing some barbecue, and he says, oh, I can't eat meat. It's Friday. So I look at him and I say, okay, like, let me get this straight. Why can't you eat meat on Friday? And he says, well, I'm a Catholic, which means that I'm not allowed to eat meat on Fridays. I can only eat fish. So let me get this straight. You just went to a rager and just practiced all the debauchery in the world, and you're saying that you can't eat meat on a Friday night. They said, yes. So I was perplexed. I asked him how this system works out in his mind. He says, well, I go to the confessional. I tell the priest that I've, I've sinned. He tells me what to do, and then I'm, I'm clear. I'm good. I stand right before God that way. And, and really, I'm just doing this to appease my parents anyway. So I can't, I can't eat meat. It just doesn't feel right in my soul. I wonder if some of us live lives like my friend who goes to a rager, who think that, you know, I'm going to do bad things in my life. I'm going to mess up here and there. But as long as I do enough good things, as long as I make up somehow in my life to stand right before God, then... I can be righteous, or I could stand right before God. What the author of Hebrews addresses this morning is that very idea. That the way that we stand right before God isn't by something that we do, isn't done by avoiding red meat on Fridays. It's actually done through the person and work of Christ. So here's the main idea this morning, to look to the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, To look to the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. It's going to come in two parts. Firstly, look away from the shadows. Look away from the shadows. And number two, look to the perfect sacrifice. Look to the perfect sacrifice. So we're going to begin with point one, to look away from the shadows. Read with me in verse one. 
since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. The author of Hebrews here is referring to the law, the Old Testament law. God sets up a covenant agreement with his people, Israel, and tells them that you obey my commands and I will bless you. You disobey my commandments and then I will curse you. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the law, the rules and commandments of God, do not perfect the worshipers. That even though Israel received these rules and commandments for them to follow, that the rules and commandments that they received actually have no effect on their right standing before God. He's saying that the law, the rules and commandments of God do not perfect the worshipers. It has no active agent. It has no substance to it. In fact, the law is actually a shadow a visage of what is to come. The law is a shadow, not the substance. Nobody should love a shadow. Okay. Now, would it be normal for me to go visit my sister? Some of you have been praying for her. Thank you for that. And to proceed to hug her shadow. Just drop to the floor and just hug whatever darkness is around her. To ask her how, to ask her shadow how she's doing. Would that make sense? No, it's a ridiculous picture, right? Nobody looks to shadows for substance. The shadow of your spouse can't love you. The shadow of your steak, unlike my friend on Friday, can't feed you. The shadow of Christ is the law, and the law can't save you. This means that whatever good works that you do, whatever good things that you try to do to make up your standing before God is worthless. It's a shadow. It has no effect. Now, that doesn't mean that the law itself is evil, but the purpose of a shadow is not to be substance. It points to the substance. A shadow lets you know that something of substance is there. If you see a shadow, that means something is there. If you see the law, it's supposed to point to something of substance. If you're not a Christian, first of all, thank you for coming. It's awesome that you're here. I wonder what you think of religion. You might think that religion is a system of rules that are designed to restrict you. And I'd like to tell you this morning that Christianity is not about rules. It's not about behavioral adjustment. It's not about getting you to stop coming to a rager on a Friday night. Christianity is about Christ. I'll elaborate more later. Read with me in verse 2. Otherwise, they would, they would, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? The author of Hebrews raises up a good question here. Sacrifices do not successfully cover sins. But if God gave them clear instructions on how to give sacrifices, instructed them to make sacrifices for their sin, then why did they have to give them? Right. So if they're supposed to give sacrifices for when they sin, then why would God give it to them if it actually doesn't cleanse them? 
The answer is in the instructions. See, in the law, if you read in Leviticus chapter 16, Moses instructs the Israelites that, that there is a requirement of sacrifice for sin, but not just if you sin. Okay, a lot of us like to think that in Israelite time, you sin, and then you go, oh man, I sinned. So you go to the temple, tell the priest what you did, he brings out a lamb, and then you sacrifice it, and then you walk away cleansed. But that's not the only way that sacrifices function in the Old Testament. See, every year, there will be a large corporate sacrifice on a day called the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would get to the temple, he would sacrifice a bull for himself, and then he would enter the Holy of Holies, and then he would sacrifice a goat on behalf of the nation, for the whole people of Israel. So, here's the question that we ought to ask when we think of a yearly sacrifice. Why would God have a sacrifice at the same time every year and not a conditional sacrifice? Let me put it another way. Why would God have the people of Israel make a sacrifice on the same day every year instead of if they sin? Doesn't God have a little more trust in his people why is God so pessimistic? You can't keep, you can't trust your people to keep it together for 12 months, God? It's almost as though there's this expectation for them to mess up. And if you read the Old Testament, you understand why there's an expectation for them to mess up. Because we know that the people of Israel couldn't stop sinning for 12 days, let alone 12 months, right? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. They literally see the presence of God descend on the mountain, and they get too scared to go up. So he sent Moses, Moses to go up instead. They agree that they should stay down. And while Moses is there in the presence of God, and God is giving him this instruction, the people of Israel are down, smelting their gold and silver to make a golden cow. Great job. To trust the law is to overestimate yourself. To trust in sacrifices, to trust in what you can do is to overestimate yourself. It assumes that there's even a possibility for you to maintain these rules for a year, a month, a day, a week. But brothers and sisters, we live lives soaked in sin. Romans 3.23 says that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we haven't just sinned, past tense. We will continue to sin. So can you see why trusting in the law in this situation would be completely useless? Amen. See, the problem with trusting in the law in your works and what you do isn't that it inflates sin, but that it inflates you. It tells you that you can somehow make up for your sins. And I love you. Your ego does not match the reality. So then, what is the function of a law? Was there a point to the law? Yes. Read with me in verse 3. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. See, the law is meant to show you that sin is bad. 
is meant to be a reminder of sin. Sin is bad, and you are guilty of it. See, you can't say that you didn't know. There are active examples of the consequence of sin. When you sin, a bull or a goat has to die. There is a consequence. It's like a parent disciplining their child. Don't just discipline them arbitrarily. You're trying to show your child that when you disobey, there are consequences. Just like in real life, you get disciplined, except it hurts a lot more in different ways. Law is meant to discipline the children. And actually, the law isn't supposed to draw attention to itself, but to Jesus. See, the law is a shadow pointing to the substance of Christ. See, the law functions kind of like a neon sign that points to Jesus. Look here. Look over there. Now, nobody would stop their car to admire a sign, to to look at a sign, to look at the shape of the arrow and how it's artistically designed to point perfectly to a city. The purpose of a sign is to signify that there's something more significant ahead. It's counterintuitive to stop at the sign. See, if there's an ambulance as driving a patient to a ho- a patient to a hospital, it makes no sense to drop off that patient at the sign pointing to the hospital. Why? Because there's no help there. You could drop off the patient there, and you can admire the sign there, but it's absolutely worthless. It's counterintuitive to the help that they need. It doesn't mean that the sign has failed. It doesn't mean that the sign is completely worthless. It has a function, but its function isn't healing the people. It's pointing the people to the place where they can actually find their healing. The writer drills this in even further in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So he makes a very active point here. I was talking to a different non-Christian friend that same Friday night, and I was reading this text to him and asking what he thought. And he stopped me and he said, Brunt, are you saying that bulls and goats actually don't do anything? I said, yeah. He's like, seriously? Like, sacrifices don't do anything for your religion. Yes, they don't do anything. There's nothing special about bulls and goats that make them a legitimate payment for sins. Now, a lot of us have grown up in the church, so let's take a step away for a second. Why in the world would killing a cow cleanse us for sin? Does that make any sense? The author of Hebrews thinks the same thing. It doesn't make any sense. Killing the bulls and goats actually has no intrinsic effect. It doesn't do anything for the people. Works are not a legitimate payment for sin. Being a good person is not a legitimate payment for sin. Trying to appease God with your good works is like trying to pay Sally Maybach with Monopoly money. You could try, and you could be really sincere with it. But for some reason, they're not going to take your cash. It's not going to work. See, friends, your best works are as good as bulls and goats before God. They're not meant to save you. They're worthless. They have no intrinsic ability to take away sins. 
Stop looking at monopoly money to pay your bills. It's not going to work. And we can actually see that God has planned this from the beginning long ago. Read with me in verse 5. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You do not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. The author of Hebrews is actually drawing this from the Old Testament. He's not bringing up a new idea here. This is something that God had intrinsically woven into the fabric of the Old Testament from the beginning. So who is the one that is coming into the world? Any guesses? Christ, Jesus. He's the one that is coming into the world, and he is the one who's speaking here. And he says that God doesn't desire sacrifices or offerings, but a body. God doesn't desire sacrifices of bulls and goats. He desires a person. Read on with me in verse 6. You do not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. God does not delight in offerings. God does not delight in your good works. He delights in doing the will of God. The burnt offerings and sin offerings are mere outward expressions of the inward faith and desire to do the will of God. So you may ask, how do people in the Old Testament get saved? Well, they get saved by trusting in the promise of God that He doesn't desire sacrifices of bulls and goats, but He desires a person. So when they're sacrificing these bulls and goats and when they're acting, they're acting in trust of what's to come. So they're doing it out of a desire to do the will of God. I'll elaborate more on that later. Read with me in verse 8. After he says above, you do not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. So doing the will of God is better than your works, your, your good deeds. Now, wait, you might say, hold up, John. Doesn't that sound contradictory? You just told me not to look at what I do and then instead do the will of God. So I'm still doing things. You're still expecting me to do something to get my salvation, right? Well, hold on there. We have to be careful with this text. Just because a passage is talking about the will of God and doing the will of God, it's not referring to your will. It's not referring to your will. If you think that your will is what saves you, then you end up right back to square one because you're having to do things in order to earn your salvation. No one can do the will of God perfectly. Amen? Even in the past week, I was having a lot of trouble doing the will of God perfectly. No one can do it. No one, that is, except Jesus. Hmm. See, the author of Hebrews, when he's talking about this passage, he's not referring to you. 
He's referring to Christ. Christ does His Father's will perfectly. He was the only one who was able to accomplish the will of God perfectly. Christ is the substance that the signs have been pointing to. Christ is the substance that they have been waiting millennia for. And Christ fulfills the law. He completes it perfectly. And that's the truth of the gospel. You see, if you're a non-Christian and you only have a minute to listen, or a minute to listen, this would be it. That we all have a responsibility to do the will of God. To do His will. And we have broken that responsibility. In Christian terms, we would call that sin, that disobedience, that rebellion against Him. And while the law condemned us, while it pointed to our inadequacy, Christ, truly man and truly God, fulfilled the will of God that we never could. He hung on a cross doing His Father's will and bore the wrath that we deserved for breaking the will of God and rose victorious over death. So you should trust in this Christ. That's the truth of the Gospel. That your works won't do anything for you. Your good works are completely worthless before God. And the point of these rules is not to enslave you. Not to restrict you, but to free you by pointing you to the solution of these rules. And His name is Christ. Verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. We have been made holy, transformed through Christ. That means that it is over. It's finished. In terms of the idea of the sacrifice and earning our salvation is completely over. The game is won. And that means that we cannot earn our salvation. To say that we must work in order to obtain salvation isn't to say that you have to somehow own up to what you did. What you're actually saying is that Christ is not enough. Legalism, or the attempt to earn your salvation, in fact tells two lies, even though it might seem holy or or righteous or well-intentioned at the surface, if you dig deeper, there are two lies that legalism tells. Firstly, that you are capable of paying off the debt of your sin. That you're somehow able to pay it off yourself. This lie is atrocious because, firstly, it believes that you're able to handle sin by yourself. And anyone who's tried to handle sin by themselves, good luck. And B... That sin is manageable. That it's this tame pet that you kind of have, that you can domesticate, that you can handle safely. Both are not true. So you'll either deceive yourself into thinking that you're doing pretty good, in which case you could be as well-intentioned as as you'd like, but you're probably an idiot. Or, oh, oh, and also within there, you'll actually look down at other people that aren't doing as well as you. Because you've deceived yourself into thinking that you're doing well. So you look at other people that aren't doing as well and you start to look down on them. Or, secondly, you'll start to beat yourself up for not doing enough. In which case, you're still being arrogant because you're setting up some standard that you think that you can achieve. 
So you're beating yourself up for not achieving your potential. You're still thinking much of yourself. For not being good enough. And pretty soon, if you keep beating yourself up, you'll start to look at God as an oppressive ruler who's expecting you to do the hokey pokey in order to enter heaven. It's just too much stuff for me to do. God's being unreasonable. And that, that weight that you feel from not being able to do the law perfectly leads to the second lie. The second lie, which is that God can't or doesn't help me. God can't or doesn't help me. Have you ever heard the phrase that God helps those who help themselves? Friends, God helps those who are incapable of helping themselves. Okay? No parent looks at their baby and says, you know, I wipe those who wipe themselves. No, that doesn't work. And friends, no one is capable of helping themselves. And that is some of the best news that you'll ever hear. Because if we're incapable of helping ourselves, of achieving something on our own accord, then that means that salvation doesn't depend on us. That means that our salvation isn't contingent on us. It depends on Christ. And the good news is that Christ is a whole lot more capable and a whole lot more dependable than we are. Christ is sufficient. Christ has paid the penalty that we deserve on our behalf. And that moves us to our second point. So the first point was to look away from the shadows of the law. It doesn't do anything for you. And the second point is to look to the perfect sacrifice. Christ. Look to the perfect sacrifice. The, the author of Hebrews gives this illustration in verse 11. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sins. So he transitions into the temple. You're standing in the temple. You see a, see a priest wake up in the morning. He gets up. He knows what he's going to do. He sharpens his little pocket knife, goes out. Some guy comes up to him, confesses sin. He pulls out the bowl and go, or he slices his throat, he makes a sacrifice, goes to sleep, wakes up, and he does it again. And every single day for hours, he's standing there toiling away at providing sacrifices for sin. And the irony is that none of it actually works. Standing up and he's doing something pointless, like Sisyphus in Greek mythology, who's punished to push up an immense boulder up this hill. So he spends all day toiling away, pushing at this hill. You can tell that I don't do a lot of physical activity because that's not a good way of pushing a boulder. right? So he's pushing the boulder up the hill, and just as it's about to reach the top, it tumbles all the way back to the bottom. And he's punished and forced to go back to the bottom and start again. So he goes back to the bottom, he pushes, he tumbles. He pushes, it tumbles pushes, it tumbles over and over and over and over again. And these priests get up in the morning, go to the temple, make the same sacrifices over and over 
and over again. Day after day after day. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. Months turn into years, decades. And next thing you know, they're doing this over and over and over again. And it does nothing. It's completely pointless. Have you ever felt like you're constantly toiling? Constantly trying to be good enough. To impress your peers. To be a perfect student. To be employee of the month. To have the perfect marriage. Perfect kids. Perfect retirement. Perfect purity. Perfect Christianity. Every day, it feels like you're exerting all the force that you can muster into this boulder only to have it tumble down again. And again. And again. The fight never ends. The toil never ceases. And I'd like to ask you, is that worth it? Verse 12. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So while we stand and we push and we toil and toil and toil, Christ, the true substance, gives himself as a perfect sacrifice and sits down at the right hand of the Father. He sits... What we toil over, Christ completes. It is finished. It's done. Brothers and sisters, don't toil over something that Christ has called finished. It is complete. It's over. There's a reason why He can sit. It's because He doesn't have to do anything. It's over. Verse 13. He is now waiting until His enemies are made his footstool. See, Christ doesn't just sit. He also reigns. He sits at the right hand of God in complete victory. And when he sits next to God, he's not sitting in some kind of, of lawn chair, just kind of loitering around. No, he sits on a throne. And this throne is a mighty throne high above the rest. Christ presides over the universe. And he doesn't just sit on this throne. Usually what they do with these kind of thrones, I was in D.C., I saw um, the Lincoln Memorial, which, by the way, was the outside building was built like a Roman temple. And I went there at nighttime with this lights on this like marble statue of this ominous giant Lincoln. And it was the closest thing to a Roman god I had ever seen, right? So he's sitting there, and the way they do it with this throne or this chair that he's sitting, is that there was a law in terms of how high the statue can legally be. But they wanted Lincoln to be large, as big as possible. So what they did was they got him to sit so that they could actually make his body even larger, so that the maximum height would be bigger. And what they did with this throne, or this chair that he's sitting on, is they made it even larger. This, this huge chair for him to sit on, so that he's kind of ominously towering over it. Maybe it was because I saw it at nighttime, right? But, uh, but he's towering over this thing. And what they do is they elevate the pedestal so that his feet can still touch the floor. See, 
if, if you're sitting on a throne and it's big to reflect your majesty, your legs aren't supposed to just kind of swing over the ledge. It's supposed to rest on something. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that rather than having Christ's legs dangle over the edge of his throne, he's using the body of his enemies as his footstool. His enemies are the footrest to his lazy boy. That is an epic picture. What a glorious God that we worship. And it's a foolish thing to try to rebel against this God. Jesus is not neutral territory. You can't merely admire him. You will either sit with him and reign with him, or he will sit on you. Accept this free gift of God and reign with you. That's the good news. Verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. In Christ, we are perfected. We're perfect. It's done. Now, does that mean that we're completely sinless right now? All right. Some of y'all are like looking over. No. (laughs) Uh, It's not over. But when we are in Christ, when we're immersed in Christ, his identity overwhelms our sinfulness. His righteousness is transferred to us. We talked about this morning in church history, how Luther discovers about Christ's righteousness being given to us, that we're immersed into it. So so brothers and sisters, if you trust in Christ, non-Christian friend, if you're here with us this morning, if you trust in Christ, then that means that your sins are no match for the blood of the Savior. You are no match for the Savior. And gratefully, Christ is for us and not against us. He'll perfect us whether we're capable or not, whether we go kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He has more than, he has more than capable to be able to do that for us. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for after, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I'll put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. So the Holy Spirit himself testifies to this change. The law won't just be something that we ascribe to, that we ascribe to, it will be inscribed, etched into our hearts. He will never again remember our sins. See, when the law doesn't bind us, when it doesn't restrict us, we're actually able and freed to love genuinely. If you're a Christian, to avoid hell, then you do not have the right motivation. Avoiding hell is not the primary motivator for a Christian. That would be legalism, right? What do I have to do to avoid this bill? That's viewing God as a cruel, oppressive master. No, God frees us not to be enslaved to the law, but to live the law through the power of the Spirit. It's etched into your hearts. You obey in the overflow of your identity in Christ. The law is etched into your heart. It becomes part of who you are. So so how do we make this distinction? 
salvation. Okay, salvation is not contingent or dependent on our obedience, but salvation causes obedience. Okay, it causes obedience. So it's not it's not obedience before salvation. It's salvation before obedience. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, that we're not merely freed from the law, we're freed to the law. That we're freed to the law. The gospel of Christ enables us to live lives worthy of the gospel that we have received. It would be impossible for us to do it ourselves, but the Holy Spirit enables us to fight sin and to live for righteousness. So, can you see how this is different from legalism and lawlessness? See, legalism says that you have to obey the rules in order to obtain salvation. Okay? Lawlessness looks at that and says, that is a bad system and I don't want that. So, do away with laws altogether and I'm just going to live life the way that I so please. But that's still a rule. And it's still a reaction against something. It's a reaction against a system that you disagreed with. See, both of these ideas, legalism and lawlessness, come from the same root, which is this idea that God is this oppressive, cruel master who gives you rules that you must obey in order to obtain heaven. But that's not the life of the Christian. God gives us Christ. And when we live in Christ, it transforms our identity. So we don't obey Christ out of obligation. We obey Christ out of joy. We obey Christ out of identity. So when you rebuke your brother and sister, you're not rebuking them so that they must obey this particular rule. You're reaffirming the identity that they have in Christ. If you're enslaved to the sin of pornography, you tell them that is not your identity in Christ. Amen. If you're holding on to your wealth and your riches or your, or your financial need as though that is what you're dependent on in life, you tell them that that's not your identity in Christ. So when you live for Christ, the law is etched into your hearts. It's not something that you're enslaved to. It's not something that you're oppressed by. It's a new life that's been given to you in Jesus. Verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these, of these sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. It's because Christ has finished the work that we don't need sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, you do not need to work for your salvation. You don't need to stand. You can rest in Christ who sits. The good news of the gospel is that it is finished. When Christ rode into Jerusalem, he rode in to die. And when he died, he completed the sacrifice. Bethany Baptist Church, we have a responsibility to free one another, and our city to the truth of the gospel. When we feel trapped or burdened by the weight of the law, of rules, we need to point each other to Christ. There are going to be times when we forget and neglect the finished work of Christ. When, 
when we confuse ourselves or momentarily forget and try to achieve things on our own accord. And that's why we need other brothers and sisters to intervene and remind us of Christ's finished work. Several months before Ronnie Kearse passed, PJ and I went to go visit him in a hospital. While we were there, PJ asked Ronnie, Brother, are you ready to die? And he replied, Yes. Do you know where you're going to go after you die? Yes, Pastor. I'm going to heaven. Why are you going to heaven, Ronnie? Well, Pastor, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. And I've tried to do my best to make up for my mistakes and live a good life. What a heart-wrenching answer. PJ immediately turned to Romans 8 and Ephesians 2 and explained to him that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That it is finished. And it's not because of anything that we have done is purely by His grace. That nothing that we can do can separate us from the love of God, but that it's Christ who binds us to Him. That's Christ that binds Ronnie to God. So we left that day. And PJ and I visited Ronnie several times afterwards. And PJ would ask him the same questions. So you go through the ringer again, right? Ronnie, do you know where you're going to go after you die? Yes, I'm going to heaven. Why do you think you're going to heaven, Ronnie? Pastor, I haven't forgotten what you said. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus Christ. And Ronnie is rejoicing with Christ now. Continue to fight to believe, brothers and sisters. Fight the unbelief of our fellow church members, of your family members, of your co-workers, and of the city. And proclaim the glorious message of the sitting, reigning Christ. God, we thank you for the magnificent work that you've done. Thank you for Christ who can be a final sacrifice on behalf of sins. Thank you that he is sitting right now at your right hand. And thank you that he is a perfect sacrifice. And God, as we approach Easter and we think about the work of your son, let us rejoice and be freed from the bondage of the law. And God, help us to spread this good news to those around us, to preach Christ, to proclaim this glorious, freeing message. And help us to live our lives as ones who have been immersed in Christ, etched with the good news. In Jesus' name.